1: Down where the river is flowing
2: That's where the lovers are going Nice little place where they retain A brand new lover's lane. They, they claim that our eyes Will
1: just be created a slightly different they are me talking, she names her.
3: Strange familiars. Riddle me this, Allison. Yes? How was your day?
4: It was good. It was good.
3: How was your evening? It was fine. So tonight's show has a sort of tacit connection to Albatwitch Day.
4: Yeah, it takes place within a stone's throw of it.
3: At least part of the story does. We're going to call the story... The ghost of Peggy LaRue. But there's much more to the story than a ghost.
4: There are flappers and gangsters and.
3: Pro boxers. Pro
4: boxers, yeah. And.
3: Bootleggers.
4: Prohibition era. Petty criminals. Flappers. Liberated women. People with haircuts. There <laughs> <laughs>
3: aren't women driving cars in this, are there?
4: There is. My goodness. There are liberated ladies driving cars, and potentially voting.
3: Scandalous. But before we get to that, I want to talk about Appletoach today just for a second, because I want to thank everybody who came out. It was so touching, the number of people that came up and told us. We listened to Strange Familiars, we came today because of you, etc., etc.
4: Yeah, and I'm so bad with names, so I just remember things like the nice guy from West Virginia, or like the guy with the nurse with wound tattoo, or Tara or Tara from New Jersey with the red hair. Like, those are the things I remember, but I don't necessarily remember everybody's name.
3: There were literally too many people who came up to remember everybody. And I'm sorry about that. And there's also familiar faces that come up, and I'm like, I know I've met this person before. But in the it's context... It's out of context, yeah. yeah. In the context of Albatwitch Day, where it's literally rapid fire. One person after another coming up, and I'm not complaining. It's so touching. It was awesome. Like, it's just amazing. Because, like you said, we do this podcast from our house, and we kind of put it out there.
4: And we know some local people listen to it, but they're mainly, like, people we know in some capacity.
3: Yeah, and I mean, I know it's getting out there, but to have that real-life feedback, and it was this just constant flow of people coming up, it was so wonderful. And I want to thank everybody who came out and said such nice things to us and about the podcast. Thank you so much. We had a wonderful day, as we usually do at Alba Twitch Day. It was just great. I just can't say enough words. It was was just fantastic.
4: And it's really nice to see it starting to gain momentum. Like, we were there six or seven years ago when it started, when there were like five vendors on a windy street. Yeah. And now it's by the river and it's beautiful and there's tons of people and...
3: Tons of vendors. and Yeah, it was just, it was really hopping.
4: Yeah, I can't wait to see like what it is in years to come.
3: So thank everybody for coming out. Thanks to Chris Vera and Columbia Historic Preservation Society for putting on Albatwitch Day. Rick Fisher was a big help. Diane was on the trolleys. Telling stories. She's a huge help. And they just make it such a wonderful time. All the people from Albatwitch Day. I love Columbia.
4: We're returning
5: there tonight.
3: So when all these people were at Albatwitch Day, little did they know (laughs) that they were mere feet away from at least part of tonight's story.
4: So we're going all the way back to 1924. Actually, we're going a little bit earlier than 1924. Yeah,
3: 1924 is like... The the, event. The event. Yeah, we'll call it the event.
4: But some years previous to that, a young fledgling flapper with two young children leaves New Jersey with a justice of the peace, not to marry someone else, but to potentially run off with a justice of the peace.
3: Yes, so she was with her husband and had two kids. What is her name at this time in New Jersey?
4: At this time, she's um, Mrs. Abbott. She's Alice Abbott.
3: And she has two children.
4: They're from around the Patterson, New Jersey area.
3: And she meets this judge and gets involved with him. And the judge had a wife too, didn't
4: he? Yeah, and a family. Mm-hmm.
3: But they run off together.
4: And they, they travel around and do all kinds of stuff. Like They end up for a while in Buffalo, New York, and he's a barber. He returns to his wife for a while, and then he heads out again.
3: To go back to her. To
4: go back to her. He needs some money to fund these little trips. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So he he starts embezzling some of the parole money from some of the cases he's hearing. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. And that lands him in jail in Trenton. Wouldn't be my favorite place to be in jail in Trenton, but it happens. And so that leaves Miss Alice to figure out life on her own. There was a letter sent in June of 1924, to her family, requesting that she be able to see her children again. Her husband just ignored it, didn't answer her back. And it is around this time that she was working at, I think it's the Skillman. It came in an asylum, like an abandoned asylum, but it was a home for epileptic people. And she was working as a nurse. In New Jersey. In New Jersey. How or why she ends up in Colombia is something of a mystery.
3: I get the impression from the reading we did that Colombia at this time was a pretty rough place.
4: Well, I think it's kind of always been like a borderland.
3: Colombia is kind of a liminal town. I mean, it's right there on the river. It's always been kind of the westernmost town in, in Lancaster County.
4: Yeah, and Lancaster City sort of wants, always wants to divorce itself of Columbia. Mm-hmm. And York definitely doesn't want to involve itself with Columbia because that's on the other side of the river. And you know, things change as soon as you cross the river.
3: <laughs> I feel like Columbia is more York than it is Lancaster, though. I feel like it feels more like.
4: Like an adjunct part of York. yeah. To me, the most one of the most fascinating aspects of Columbia, which predates this story by probably a hundred years, is that because it was such an integral part of the Underground Railroad that a lot of people thought that they had actually reached freedom once they crossed the river and were in Columbia, a place with a huge free black population, and people could just sort of become part of the community, get jobs with Whipper and Smith just start to live a free life or continue on to Philadelphia or Canada or other stops on the Underground Railroad. So it really is like sort of a liminal space between freedom and not freedom, progression and regression.
3: Smith and Whipper, for people who don't know, were the wealthiest black men in the country, possibly at one point the wealthiest men in the country who happened to live in Columbia. Their lumber yard was along the river, actually literally right by Columbia Crossing, where Albatwitch Day is. Very interesting people
4: we 're going to do a whole other show at some point on the underground railroad and
3: and Columbia is a huge part of that, so so yeah, Colombia very early had a free black population, lots of freed enslaved people, previously enslaved people were coming to colombia it wasn 't as unusual to have say a mixed race family in Colombia as it was in other places. It was a really I mean, I I don't know if progressive is the right word to use for that time, but the town was a freedom stop, let's say, mm-hmm. on the Underground Railroad and a very important place, very, very important place.
4: A more realistic freedom, I would say, than in York. York was not a place of the same kind of freedom that Columbia offered.
3: No, no. If you were an enslaved person that escaped... You were not safe in York County. Mm-hmm. You wanted to keep moving. Mm-hmm. You wanted to get across the river.
4: And a lot of people went to Columbia and then through Whipper and Smith headed to Philadelphia to William Still and other locations. But for a lot of people, they, they had a new home there.
3: Yeah. So Columbia is already a, a super interesting place before any of this happens.
4: Yeah, this is, I mean, some of that activity is 100 years before this happens.
3: Exactly,
2: yeah.
4: But Columbia also has a reputation for a town that sort of hangs in between being a very progressive sort of artsy artistic place and a place that has some
3: some rough areas. Some
4: rough areas. <laughs>
3: so once again, for those of you who were at Alpa Twitch Day at Columbia Crossing, to get to Columbia Crossing you crossed Front Street at the light and you drove over the railroad tracks and then you were at Columbia Crossing. Front Street, along Front Street there was known in the 1920s. They literally called it the Red Light District. So Alice, for whatever reason, comes to Columbia.
4: My suspicion would be based on the other activity that we've heard about is that perhaps not only was she down and out and didn't really have a way to make money on her own, but there is some insinuation from other parties that were with her later on that there might've been a, a drug addiction Yeah, And usually where there's drug addiction, there's ways to make money in the same general area that don't require a lot of technical ability.
3: (laughs) So Alice ends up at a house of ill repute. And before we dig into that, let's talk about all the characters involved a little bit. So we have Alice who, am I ruining the story if I say she changes her name when she gets to Columbia?
4: No, I don't think so. Nor um, are we ruining too much if we tell everyone that this ends in a ghost story.
3: Yes. There's a very important part of this. That's why it's called The Ghost of Peggy LaRue. Mm -hmm. And Alice changes her name to Peggy LaRue when she gets to Columbia.
4: She falls in with uh, a group of people along Front Street in a house of ill repute that's owned by this rather interesting character named Grace Parago.
3: So my part of the research involved mostly kind of digging up stuff on some of these other characters, and I found the story initially. I know nothing about Grace Parago, so this will be all be in, new information to me. Tell me about Grace Parago.
4: Well, as one might imagine, as someone who grows up to be the mistress of a house of ill repute, she didn't have an amazingly um, enriching childhood. <laughs> ah. and, I fa- and because her name, luckily, is so unusual. I found so many references to her family in the newspaper for just bizarre things and a lot of abuse. That's the other thing I, I wanted to say before this episode started, before we get into it. There is a lot of abuse, addiction, violence, uh, violence. If, if that isn't your thing. I totally understand. We usually try to veer away from true crime, but this is sort of true crime that ends with a ghost story and local history. So that's why we, we've decided to um, include it
3: Yeah, and and it's...
4: We're not going to spend too much time on, on, you know, the gory details of what happens. To me, that's always the least interesting part anyway. It's always the background story to me that's fascinating in true crime, so...
3: Yeah, the other thing is it's 1924, so we're given some time, some space in between this. Yeah. And where we are today. Almost a hundred years.
4: I'm going to read some articles about Grace's family. So this is kind of indicative of if you're kind of, you get a feel for what Grace's family was like, this is from 1902, and this is what her father did for a living that year. This is after the smallpox outbreak of 1902, where people were quarantined. Her father was aiding in the cleanup efforts, so okay, <laughs> he gets in a little bit of trouble because of the bills sent for what he did. This is from the Gazette, the 19th of July, 1902, York, Pennsylvania. The first objection filed against the bills was the bill of Drayman H. Parago for $35. Do you know what a Drayman is? It's not a quiz. I, just, I had to look it up myself. It's a person who hauls beer, like works at a tavern.
3: I was going to say that it had something to do with, because there's a, I think a Dray is a beer, like oh, okay. you say in like old timey songs.
4: Yeah, and is that maybe where draft or draught maybe. comes from, like some that root maybe. word? Anyway. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> the first objection filed against the bills was when the bill of Drayman H. Parago for thirty five dollars was presented. mister Parago hauled the mattresses used from the quarantine homes to the spot where they were burned, and for each mattress the hauling fee was three dollars and fifty cents. The burning was done by yet another party, and this was an additional expense. The councilmen think the three fifty was too much, and again that the ambulance used by the board was for the purpose of hauling material to be burned. After some discussion, the bill was approved. Several of the members explaining that the health board had almost unlimited powers and that the bills being approved by that board would have to be paid no matter what councils thought or did. But this is the kind of job that's that's going on in their house, like hauling away diseased mattresses.
3: Right. It's good work if you can get it.
4: Yeah. (laughs) The next year, there's an article in the paper, Paragos go free, found not guilty of assaulting John Ziegler. Harry and Annie Parago, which are her parents, Charged with cruelly beating John Ziegler, a man of 55 years, were tried before Judge Bittner in courtroom number two yesterday. The judge requested Mrs. Barnhart, a witness for the Commonwealth, to remove the chewing gum from her mouth while testifying. She insisted that she was not chewing gum and invited anyone to examine her mouth. (laughs)
3: It's amazing what made the paper back.
4: She finally admitted that she was chewing tobacco, however, and then burst into tears. (laughs) Witnesses for the Commonwealth all testified that the Paragos assaulted the old man. The woman rolled up her sleeves and struck him a blow in the face, drawing blood, and then she knocked him into a ditch and trampled on him. Jeez. Her husband appeared, and between them, they tore the shirt from his back. The evidence of the defense contradicted much of this and was to the effect that the assault was committed by the old man. Ziegler represented the defense, and Ray Sherwood the Commonwealth. The jury returned a verdict of not guilty, giving Mrs. Parago half the costs and the prosecutor the other. So they're hauled into court. All the time. Sometimes they get off. Sometimes they don't. This is Grace's mom, just to tell you what what she was dealing with. Annie Parago has been arrested and been given bail from Alderman Akinbaugh for hearings on three charges, selling liquor without a license, selling liquor to minors, and keeping a disorderly house. I think a disorderly house is a euphemism.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of euphemisms in these articles. They really dance around prostitution and they dance around drug use.
4: Yeah, a lot of times they. I've been finding, they instead of prostitution, they've been saying things like, arrested on a serious charge. Right. And when it's a woman, that's almost invariably what it is.
3: Yeah, they don't come out and say it.
4: So she's not growing up in um, perhaps the best household.
3: June Cleaver is not her mom.
4: No, in fact, here is her mom the next year. Constable Ginter yesterday arrested Mrs. Annie Parago on a serious charge. Mm. This is the woman whom the police and Constable Winter were seeking on Monday evening when they raided the house of Sim Salvatore. Aren't these characters just like, they all have names that sound like. (laughs) Yeah.
3: So, serious charge there. It would make sense that Grace kind of went into the family business then.
4: Yes, and the, the history of abuse that goes on, like, there are so many stories here of either her father uh, attacking her mother, that makes the papers numerous times. At one point, they separate, and she's living at different, with different people at different times. She just doesn't have an incredibly stable home life, and so she seems to have gone into the family business.
3: <laughs> yeah. Doesn't her house there in Columbia... Have a fancy name, like at some point they name it, and it's.
4: Oh yeah, I mean they they give it a name. They call it well. Sometimes she's called the Snowbird. I guess she kind of came and went. Mm. Sometimes they refer to it as a body house, but they they called it. Um,
3: yeah, one of the articles they give it kind of a fancy name. It's like.
4: Yeah, like her. um,
3: Grace Parago's finishing school now. <laughs> <laughs> Hogwarts, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Hogwarts may be more Yeah. <laughs> So Peggy Larue somehow decides to come to Columbia.
4: She meets up with Grace. Yes, who offers her a job and a place to stay. Things don't get appreciably better from here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. she has a place to stay, but she has a husband and child, children that she's not that she can't see anymore. She now has a uh, fiance who's in jail for embezzlement. She probably has a drug addiction, and she's a flapper, so she already, you know. She has the propensity for, to get herself into trouble.
3: <laughs> my so, sainted, beloved grandmother was a flapper. So I, <laughs> well, not all flappers, I'm just saying.
4: Hopefully Nana was more of the bakelite and, and short hair and, and less of the um, soiled dove variety. <laughs> I, you're, I can see your face, you're like, why would you even insinuate for a minute uh, that my, Nana was a My soy- sainted Nana.
3: <laughs> <laughs> most,
4: your favorite member of your family. favorite
3: member of my family, most beautiful... Wonderful, lovely person in my family, and I, I love her and miss her.
4: Low bar, though, admittedly. <laughs> For my family. Yeah. <laughs> so it appears from the research that the detectives do after her death that she hadn't actually been in Columbia very long.
3: Before she meets up with some of these other characters. Yep. So while Peggy LaRue... Mm-hmm. Under whatever name she's going by, is having her various adventures. There's another fella bouncing around New York and Lancaster, by the name of Sailor Kid Mac. At least that's his professional name.
4: Yes, he's really um, a Scottish immigrant named Fred McLean. And
3: they called him Sailor Kid Mac because he was Scottish, so mm-hmm. was McLean. But I think he was in the Royal Navy. He was in the Royal Navy before yeah. he came to York. He settles in New York and he becomes a professional boxer.
4: He's not, like, um, a big, beefy, tough guy, because when you when I searched the records, like, he ends up at Eastern State Penitentiary. Hopefully this isn't giving away too much of what happens, but it does give his weight and his height, so we can have an idea of, like... Because I, I don't have a good sense of, like...
3: There's a picture of him in the paper. He's, yeah, and he's
4: pretty slight. Yeah, yeah he's, he's a... He's this, um, slim guy. Slim guy.
3: And uh, uh, Sailor Kid Mac mostly boxes... Around York and Lancaster. Did you say he had one bout in Hawaii?
4: I found out that there was a couple people going by Kid Mac as a name. And this is probably um, an Irish stereotype, but there were a lot of boxers with the last name. Mac. Mac.
3: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I I, I think he was mostly around... I, I looked up... There's actually a website of boxing records. I don't understand a lot of it, but...
4: Yeah, he had about, what, a little less than 20 different professional fights. Yeah,
3: yeah, and kind of Dylan helped me parse out the the records and and understand him a little bit better. He wasn't the best fighter. I think he lost more than he won. He was knocked out a few times. I don't think he ever knocked anybody out. But, you know, he kept fighting, I guess.
4: (laughs) He did. And sometimes he would fight with his girlfriend, who had been... Following him around so much, he wanted to get away from her. He was starting to get really annoyed with this <laughs> girl.
3: So we have another character who's entered yeah. entered the story, and her name is
4: Leonora O'Brien. She eventually becomes Leonora O'Brien Senef, then Sturgis, then Foose. Like she's nearly everyone in the story is married multiple times, uh-huh. <laughs> or it could just be a convenient way to get an alias, I guess.
1: Right,
3: right. So, what's her deal other than being Sailor Kid Mac's girlfriend?
4: Well, Leonora has a pretty similar trajectory to Grace Parago, the owner of the brothel in Colombia. Ah. When I first see her in the paper, she's there because she's gotten into a fight with a boyfriend. Now, sometimes when I've read these, she's the one being charged, <laughs> and sometimes it's her boyfriend being charged with assault. This is when she's just. 17 years old. Miss Leonora O'Brien, 1152 East King Street, was arrested before Alderman Philip Amig of the Second Ward last evening on two charges, assault and battery and surety of the peace, and held in both instances for court. Chauncey Hobbs of Howard Avenue, who is also under arrest on oath of Miss O'Brien, charged with aggravated assault and battery, instituted the first charge, and Miss Fanny Rich Creek instituted the other. Hobbs, who was being held for a hearing, was also recommitted to jail in default of bail. The arrest of Miss O'Brien was made last Tuesday evening by Patrolman Jones, and she was later turned over to Detective Harry K. Fix. Miss O'Brien was also arrested on a third charge of cruelty to animals proffered by Israel Rich Creek, the father of Miss Fanny Rich Creek. So she's involved in some kind of. Uh, an altercation. This is not the only one, I find.
3: Hmm. Um, so, I think we're establishing that this is a rough crowd.
4: Yes, I would say that's true. Apparently, she left one of her first potential boyfriends at the church, and he was mad. And so, this article made the newspaper, Jilted Swain grew peevish, which is an odd way to say he stalked his ex-girlfriend. <laughs> okay. When Leonora O'Brien left Chauncey Hobbs waiting at the church, Hobbs didn't break into melancholy song, but hired a team and started out to find his faithless sweetheart who was out for a drive. See, she was driving. Mm. He came upon her in the street, and following the encounter, the girl proffered charges of aggravated assault and battery under which Hobbs is now waiting in jail. Miss O'Brien alleges that she was driving a younger sister when her jilted lover sprang from his buggy and attacked her. (laughs) She wow. was beaten and choked, she says, and most of her clothing torn from her back, besides which Hobbes threatened her with a revolver and a stiletto.
2: Wow.
3: He's yeah. dual-wielding. He's got a revolver in one hand and a stiletto in which the other. Which
4: one do you go with first? I mean, the one seems to make the other one less necessary. So, <laughs> Or is it just like a backup if something fails and you go like more analog? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't know. Rough crowd, man.
4: Yeah. These things continue even after the incident we're going to talk about. But Leonora at one time followed her boxer boyfriend around everywhere. Like she was kind of a groupie, I guess, for boxers. Mm. They have a contentious relationship.
3: It sounds like most everyone here does.
4: Yes.
5: So, the
4: last person we're going to talk about in the major four people in this incident is a man named D.W. Dorward.
3: Okay. Who did he hurt?
4: <laughs> well, I, I did do a little research on his family. He was born to a teenage mother. That's why his last name changes back and forth between his birth name, his mom's maiden name, the man she marries, and such. Apparently, there were like 17 kids in the family. And after this incident occurs, they went to their house in Neffsville for comment, and they were like nonplussed at what had happened. Wow. <laughs> so it, David was home from the war. World War I. Yes, World War I. He was home after the war, and he took a liking to Miss Peggy LaRue and would go and visit her at her new abode. They'd been seen together for about a week, going out a lot. Grace testifies that she never, ever lets her girls leave because it's always trouble. And Mm -hmm. the last girl that she let leave was killed.
3: Also, if you let them leave, they might not come back. Yes,
4: that's true. Mm. But she lets her leave because he's promising he's going to take her to dinner in York. And that's precisely what they do.
3: So this foursome goes to dinner.
4: Well, they don't know each other.
3: They don't? No, they don't know each other. They They meet at the restaurant. Oh, they end up at the restaurant. Okay. Okay. So who's the four? We have... Sailor Kid Mac.
4: Sailor Kid Mac and his annoying girlfriend, Leonora, (laughs) who won't leave him alone. (laughs) I mean,
3: maybe he was the annoying one. Okay.
4: Then there is Alice Abbott, who is now going by Peggy LaRue.
3: Peggy LaRue.
4: And her date for the evening, or a while, or for an hour, is David W. Dorwart from Neffsville above Lancaster.
3: And they all go to York for dinner.
4: Well, Kid Sailor Mac and his girlfriend are already in York. Mm-hmm. David picks up Peggy in Columbia and comes back, and they all meet up together at a, at the Crystal Restaurant in York. They've never met each other before. Just, I think they just—I think—they see each other as a potential good time.
3: I have, previous to this, never heard of this Crystal Restaurant
4: because it closed like. 40 years before you were born.
3: (laughs) I had an image in my head reading the articles. Yeah. And what you told me later was like, I was honestly picturing this restaurant to be kind of a rough place, but it actually seems like it was a pretty fancy restaurant.
4: Well, I don't know if it was fancy. I I would say maybe um, artsy. Artsy, okay. Yeah, because it was a 24-hour restaurant. I wouldn't say the fanciest restaurants are twenty four hour. <laughs>
3: true, But you said there was a piano in there, and the people that were at the theater would stop by. Yeah, it was
4: a, it was a hot spot for um, the theatrical people who were just done with their performances at the opera house, and it was also popular with the people who wrote for the newspaper. If you're from the area, I'm, to me this always seems fascinating. I'll tell you exactly where it was. It's across from the courthouse, and it's now owned by the Appell Center. It's I think one of their like a box office area. It's at 38 George Street. So they go to the Crystal restaurant. I just wanted to, I did find a description of what it was like, so to me this would help set the... Okay, (laughs) bring it. The Crystal consisted of two refurbished storerooms with the partition removed in the rear. The front of the north room was a candy shop which closed early in the evening, leaving the restaurant operating as an L-shaped affair with the wing of the L back of the closed candy shop and therefore offering a small degree of privacy to lingering patrons. There was a piano back in that section and an air of camaraderie that attracted theater people, newspaper people, and occasional policemen with a few minutes to spare from the beat for a free coffee. The little alcove was productive of many a pleasant hour, and some better vaudeville shows than one saw on stage at the York Opera House. And then I I read a description of it that it had mirrored walls, and I saw a picture of what it looked like in the interim, like after it was sold, it was called the, the Golden Glow Cafeteria. And I saw a matchbook for it, and it just it looks like it has this sort of like, well, it's about Art Deco sort of mm-hmm. time period. I mean, it's a more sedate version of it, but it really has that feel. It, it just seems like it would have been the coolest place. Like, you know, people our age do still have an affinity for the 24-hour diners. I, I don't have any interest in eating pie at 3 a.m. anymore, but like when I was a young adult, I did like that. Yes. <laughs> it just seemed like th- that way you could... Extend the night, the night wouldn't have to end. And now I'm just like, can we short the night so I can get a little nap in?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Sometime for patrons, maybe I'll tell the tale of round-the-clock diner and the semi-famous pagan personality that was there one night when we were there. 1924, could they get drinks at the Crystal Restaurant?
4: Well, they might have been able to, but they weren't legally allowed to do so.
3: Right. I have a feeling they were probably serving drinks At the Crystal Restaurant, if you knew the the code word to ask for. Yeah, I I
4: bet. And if you didn't, they knew where to get moonshine in the south end of town.
3: Exactly. So they're hanging out at the Crystal, and then they decide to...
4: Go look for some moonshine.
3: This article is from the time, right?
4: Yeah, this is the the day it happened or the day after. Police are starting to get an idea of what happened.
3: This is August 9th,
4: 1924.
3: Is it the Lancaster Intelligencer?
4: Yep. It was in a York restaurant where Peggy and D.W. Dwart met Kid Mac and the other woman. An acquaintance was struck up presently as it was with those people, and the magic word of moonshine electrified the party. York people knew exactly where to get it. That phrase was sufficient to weld a bond of friendship, which was to be so rudely rent asunder a few hours later. Intervening intimacies are not to be recorded, but suffice to say, the party headed for the Dover Road and parked a few miles outside of the city.
3: This is after they got the moonshine. Yeah, so they, they go they, and get they, the,
4: the, the, the pe- moonshine, and then there's a little gap of time where they insinuate all manner of depravity happens. Mm. It's at that time that Peggy... Who is not really quite a seasoned veteran as everyone else in, that she's hanging out with, mm-hmm. is starting to get sick. Later on, some people in, are kind of saying that perhaps she was dope sick as well as sick from alcohol. Mm-hmm. Could have been any combination of that. I don't know that. I mean, none of these people really knew her particularly well.
3: So, for those listening, the Dover Road they're referring to is on the west side of York, right outside of town.
4: Are they talking about the road that just goes by the York Fair? I think Fairgrounds, so. mm-hmm. yeah.
3: And this is a very different place at the time than it is now. Now, it's I mean, York City has spread, and where they are is essentially engulfed by the city at this point. But at that time, it was fairly rural. They were outside of town.
4: Yeah, they were heading out past the fairgrounds. The, fair, the agricultural fairgrounds would have been there at that point.
3: Mm-hmm. And they get beyond that, but there was... I mean, it was a lot of farmland out there at the time.
4: Yeah, if they were in the south end, I've looked for other things that refer to the south end. I think it's the area right about where the college is right now, right about where your college is, somewhere in the south end. They, is, is that where they got their That's where they moonshine. got the moonshine. Then they got back on the, um, the Dover Road, headed out of town, try to get Peggy LaRue some fresh air since she wasn't feeling well.
3: It was a lover's lane out there, too. Like, yeah. Yeah. So A place
4: re- where four people who have just met and are awkwardly drunk driving through town in, in already unsafe 1920s cars, <laughs> they're well inebriated and headed for some downtime.
3: Inebriated on rotgut moonshine. From everything I read, it was awful stuff. They made sure to point out that it was really nasty moonshine.
4: Not like it is today where it's nice and smooth.
3: <laughs> the moonshine I've had has been very good. <laughs>
4: We don't really drink, though, but so it's like a a little dabble do you? kind of (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So they all kind of end up in this field. This lover's lane and decide to lay down for a bit. By this point, it's like 2 in the morning. They've been drinking pretty heavily since 10 o'clock at night and driving around, and they're tired.
2: Well,
3: Sailor Kid Max kind of uh, waving around his revolver and being rather uh, uh, boisterous, say, with his revolver.
4: So... Everyone's aware that he has it. Yeah. He falls asleep, and his girlfriend, who I'm getting the impression she's a little, let's say unstable. (laughs) (laughs) She's a little unstable, and she grabs his gun.
3: She takes it from his pocket. Yeah. They made sure to point out that she tucked it into her garter.
4: Oh, like a real Bonnie and Clyde kind of reference there? I guess so,
3: yeah. So we end this part of our story with Sailor Kid Mac passed out. In the car, Peggy LaRue is passed out in the back of the car, I believe. Sailor Kid Mac's girlfriend, Leonora, has taken his revolver and tucked it into her garter. And the other guy...
4: I think he's asleep in the, in the field.
3: Okay. So everyone's basically passed out.
4: I imagine when Leonora tucked that gun, she didn't do it in a real subtle way. I think it was more defiant.
3: Who knows? I was under the impression... That he was just waving this thing around and she was literally like, he passed out and she took that opportunity to like, I'm getting this away from him. And When, when he wakes up, I don't want him waving that thing around.
4: Yeah, because there was, in some of the articles they talked about all the other guns, there were reports that she carried a gun normally herself, that the mm. other guy had a gun. Like,
3: Well, we will get into all of that as well as the ghost story on part two of The Ghost of
1: Peggy LaRue.
0: 2019 the first strange realities conference took place in nashville tennessee the pandemic and turmoil the following year could not stop 2020's conference from thriving in cyberspace as a live streaming event now for 2021 the third annual strange realities conference will combine these worlds into a paranormal hybrid event live in person in nashville and streaming online Join us in exploring just how truly strange our reality can be with an interdimensional lineup of speakers presenting unique and intellectual perspectives on magic, mysteries, and the paranormal.
2: Featuring Alan Greenfield, Dr. J. Michael Bennett, a.k.a. Dr. Future, Tim Banal, Soraya Ascath, Dr. Stephen Finley, Aaron Gullius, Amy Pachula, Brent Raines, Chris Ernst, Heather Mosher, Michael Hughes, Jose Herrera, Joshua Kutchen, Kiki Dombrowski, Isaac, PD Newman, Stephen Snyder, AKA Recluse, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Steve Stockton, and Bren Collier. Tickets available straight through these It's going to be amazing.
3: Riddle me this, Allison. I've got two riddles for you tonight. Okay. If you had a puppy (laughs) that was uh, mouthing and biting Mm -hmm. or that needed help potty training or needed help with fear and nervousness or barking or chewing on furniture, shoes, or other things the puppy shouldn't be chewing on. If you needed help with crate training this puppy, if your puppy had hyperactivity issues, (laughs) if you needed help with leash training or just about anything else, where would you go to find that help?
4: 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy.
3: You've answered the riddle, and you've passed the test. 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can help you and your puppy become perfect for each other. They have a relationship-based approach to training, which is really all it's about. You want to develop this relationship with your puppy. You're not trying to change the puppy and make it perfect. You're trying to become perfect for each other. They have online sources like video lessons, a secret Facebook group. Of course, they have one-on-one options. And you can find them at sithappens.us There's a 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. Let 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy help you understand how your dog thinks. Allison, that's not how you think.
4: I think that's yet to be determined.
3: (laughs) And you can apply proactive training methods. So once again, you and your puppy can become perfect for each other. That's 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. You can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. Got a little deja vu here. We're going to keep doing this oddity of the week every couple weeks until we run out. I have collected these for a long time. Once again, we have the Hex book by Arthur H. Lewis in combination with the booklet Popular Home Remedies and Superstitions of the Pennsylvania Germans. We've done this twice before, once with the trade paperback and once with the hardcover edition of Hex. We're back to the trade paperback. Again, this is actually a really nice edition. This is published by the York News Agency, which makes it kind of the local edition. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the local book. And I think most of the people around here either had the hardcover or they had this book mm-hmm. on their shelf. There is a mass market paperback edition, too, which I actually run into that less than this one. I think it's because we're in the area of York, and this is the edition that a lot of people had. That so, was
4: like next to like Irma Baumbach and all those Dave Barry, the like classic if you look on somebody's shelves, mm-hmm. like a neighbor, old neighbors, relatives, my parents had a copy, my grandparents had a copy, like everybody had a copy of this book.
3: So this is the story of, of course, the what's it called, the Hex Murder around here, the story of Nelson Raymire, but it may have a connection to our story tonight, in as much as this, in here, wrongly named is the River Witch of Marietta, as they call her. They name her Nellie Knoll in this book, which has caused great confusion among people. Some people still insist that was her name. That was not her name. Her name was Emma Knapp. If you're a patron, we did a show on the River Witch way back, way back. It might have been our second or third patron episode.
4: Is that where we went stumbling around in the winter in the graveyard over and over and over again trying to find her grave? I don't know if that was included on that episode or not. <laughs> I was like just going down the roads like, how many more people can...
3: Yeah, I don't think her stone is in there, but she is buried in the Marietta Cemetery. But, I Emma mean, Knapp, besides herself being born in Colombia, was, we're pretty sure, we found another article where she got in trouble with the law for giving abortions. She was a cut wife, what is known as a cut wife. So... Uh, not unusual for someone who is involved in hexery, a so-called wise woman, say, or or a witch. Not terribly unusual for such folks to have knowledge also of uh, the female reproductive system, say, and to and to give abortions. She may have been uh, quite familiar with the red light district down there along yeah. Front Street. If that was her occupation, if that was if that was one of her talents, yeah, she might have been a regular visitor to the girls down there on Front Street. Uh, we don't know. It would be interesting to find that out, though, if we could They're there at the same and, time. This, yeah.
4: this, this murder happens, what, just four years before Raymire?
3: Four or five, right? Mm-hmm. Four years, yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. Four years, yeah, before Raymire. So we're talking in the same time period. Yeah, these same people were around. I mean, they could have run into Meyer at the Crystal Restaurant.
4: Oh man! How come? These are the kind of things you're like. Oh, if I could only be a fly on the wall, or but yeah. you know, The thing is, like, there are amazing connections that we're missing going on right now. Like, do you ever wonder, like, how close have I ever been? There's no way to, to possibly. I mean, it's something that that happened, but there's no way to access the information. But mm-hmm. at some point in time, you were. Closest to you know a variety of people, you know, like I like nowadays. I'm like, I wonder how many people I've passed today who have COVID. Like, if people just like started glowing purple or something, and I'm like on a regular basis, like how many people am I standing next to who have you know are actively sick?
3: Right. Yeah. So Hex by Arthur Lewis. It's a good book. It it tells the story. I think I think a lot of people have told the story. Um, I want to say in a less accurate fashion. I believe. Mm-hmm. It's very
4: objective. I mean, it doesn't have the lens of someone from being from York. Mm -hmm. It is sort of, I guess, more like an outsider's perspective on it.
3: Mm -hmm. And the booklet, Popular Home Remedies and Superstitions of the Pennsylvania Germans, by A. Monroe Aron. it's it's self-published. This was in print for years, because he printed them up himself, and he did not date them, but I believe, given where we found it, it is one of the earlier editions, maybe from the 50s or 60s. There's no way to prove it. Like I said, he didn't date them.
4: He could have had them all published at one time and then just sort of parsed them out over 25 years or something.
3: Yeah, exactly. This one is stamped with a fellow's name from Middleburg, Pennsylvania. It must have been his property. But in any case, uh, you get these two books. The Popular Home Remedies and Superstitions has you know, kind of powwow stuff in it. It has got marriage lure Death and how to circumvent it. Sex lore. Uh, Witches and superstitions. Dreams and what they mean to us. Moon lore. So it's all kinds of kind of local powwow and local, you know, witchcraft and superstitions and home remedies and so forth in here. Makes a neat addition to The Long Lost Friend if you have that. So we're going to put these two together again in a nice little set of hex books. If you go to the show notes... Under this episode, there'll be an image. You can click on that. It'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase this and previous curiosities of the week. If you like what we do at Strange Familiars and you'd like to help us out, the best way to do that is to become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. All of our patrons get two full extra episodes of Strange Familiars every month. We're going to stick to that two-episode-a-month schedule for now. There's different tiers of support, but whatever tier of support you go in at, you get that extra content. You can check out all the levels of support. You can get things like books and CDs and pins and stickers and more. Again, it's patreon.com slash It really helps us out, and I want to thank each and every one of our patrons who make Strange Familiars possible. Patreon is a subscription service. They have monthly options and they have yearly options. Either one is fine. We're just happy when you subscribe. But if you don't like subscriptions and you still want to help out, there's a paypal.me link in the show notes under every episode at strangefamiliars.com. Click on that. It'll send you to PayPal where you can make a one-time donation. I want to thank everybody for sharing the show on social media and for leaving us those nice five-star reviews wherever you're listening, whether it's YouTube or Stitcher or whatever podcatcher you're listening on. Those nice reviews. Help get the podcast in front of new potential listeners. Once again, thank you, patrons. Allison. Yes. Do you have anything to add? I really don't. (laughs) All right. Come back soon for part two of The Ghost of Peggy LaRue, where we actually get to The Ghost of Peggy LaRue. Oh, yes. This coming weekend is the Strange Realities Conference. In person, in Nashville, Tennessee, and virtual everywhere, if you have an internet connection. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, there's a ton of speakers. I am amongst them. I'm going to be giving kind of a relaxed chat where I'm just going to be talking with Adam and Surf. They're going to be asking me some questions, but you can ask questions too. So if you attend virtually or in person, you can fire some questions at me. Then I'll have to answer on the spot. I think I'm closing the event down. I'm the closing act. I'm the last in line. That'll be Sunday, so if you can, pop in and...
4: Request Freebird. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I do not know Freebird.
4: You know you do. <laughs> I,
3: I really I don't think so. I know some words to Freebird, but anyway. Strange Realities Conference this weekend. I will be popping in virtually. I will be doing a, however we do that, a computerized uh, chat. But if you want to ask me questions, I will be there. And we will be back next week with The Ghost of Peggy LaRue, Part Two. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. If you want to hear more from Stone Breath or purchase music by Stone Breath, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group. We are on Instagram, at strangefamiliars, one word, and you can always find us on the web at strangefamiliars.com.
2: Shall return in twelve months more and one more day.